who do you trust? The question, who do you trust? Christianity is the story of those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ, the ruler and authority of their life. That is the story of Christianity. For the glory of God, those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ. Israel and and every nation, tribe, and tongue, those who have entrusted themselves to the reign of Jesus Christ over and in their lives. Trust. Who do you trust? Question. Who do you trust? It's a word that's used often, trust. What do you communicate when you say, I'm trusting this, I'm trusting that, I'm trusting them? I trust you. What are you saying when you say, I trust you? In our psalm this morning, as we continue this walk through Psalm 119, if you have a Bible, please do follow along with us. If you don't, take the Pewback Bible in front of you and walk with us through this text. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it's arranged in such a way that every Hebrew letter is dealt with. And what's been called this alphabet of prayers, this commentary on the very nature of Scripture. What is this God-breathed thing for us? And what place does it play in our lives? The story of the Christian is the one that says, the Word of God is the authority of my life. It's the light of my life. It lights my path. It gives me directions that its way is better than every way possible. That includes my leadership, my trusting of myself, or the trusting of any other worldview or person that has ever walked this earth. The ways of the Lord are better than my ways. What do you say when you say, I trust someone? What are you communicating? Our psalmist in this letter, this ayin, so again, in each of these eight verses begins with the same Hebrew letter, ayin. And in so doing, the psalmist is speaking about a time in his life that has been under great adversity and oppression. And in this experience, he's going to identify for us four aspects of what he means when he says that he trusts God. He refers to himself in this text three times as a servant of Yahweh, as a servant of the Lord. To communicate that he's a servant of the Lord, he means that the Lord, the word of the Lord, is the very center of his life. It's the authority over his life. For when he declares that I trust you, Lord, I'm your servant, he's making these these four statements. And and I argue for every one of us, the person that you say you trust, the beliefs that you say you've entrusted yourself to, every one of us makes these four claims about that. Because the first answer is, what or who do I trust? But the real question we need to ask is, are they trustworthy? worthy. Are they trustworthy? And in this little eight-verse section, this strophe, this poetic paragraph, we see four attributes of trust. First, dealing with character. Character. When you say you trust someone, you're saying you trust their character. When you say you trust someone, you're saying that they have the authority to take care of you, that you're resting in them. When you say you trust someone, you're saying, I trust their character, and I trust their authority. And third, you're saying, I trust their consistency, that they're the same person. They're not suddenly going to change on me, that they're consistent. They don't have a, a special inner circle by which they treat other people differently because of who they are. 
But fourthly, you're saying, I've surrendered myself over to them to lead my life. Four components of trust. My prayer for us as we walk through this text is that if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your king, that this would be a helpful grid, a helpful reminder of saying, like one renewing their marriage vows, oh yeah, that's who I'm bonded to. That's my king. That's my authority. That's the one I've entrusted to, and I remember his character. I remember his authority. I remember his consistency in a changing world. And I, oh yeah, I'm surrendered over to him. Every area of our life comes down to an issue of trust. So if you have your Bibles, open with me as we begin in Psalm 119, verse 121, through these eight verses, as we first notice that trust is an issue of character. Trust is an issue of character. Believing that He, that Yahweh, the Lord, the Creator, Yahweh being the personal name of the one who designed you and created you and is sustaining every one of our, of our breaths in this very moment. Believing that He is righteous and just. Verse 121, the psalmist says it like this. He says, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Now, how we speak to someone reflects how we know them. How we speak to someone reflects how we actually know them. So if, if we're speaking to somebody of low character, somebody say that's, a, that's just a repeated thief, we wouldn't speak of our high character. We would speak of what we've stolen. And we do this to a small extent in every conversation when we try to relate to somebody. So if I speak to somebody that has a music background, I'm going to impress them with the fact that I was last chair in middle school band. That's, that's my musical experience. I played trombone until eighth grade, and then our, our football coach said, you, could, you have to choose football or band. And I said, thank you, Lord, football, all in. But you find an area, if you find somebody that's interested in trucks or a certain style of music, and you have a connection there, you speak the same language of values and interests. The psalmist knows Yahweh. He knows the Lord. And therefore, he refers to the righteousness and the justice by which has marked the psalmist's life. Because he knows that's who the Lord is. He knows the character of the Lord is of righteousness and, and justice. And he's walked in a way that walks out uh, this text in, in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The psalmist says, Lord, this is how I live, and it's how you call me to live, because it's who you are. It's who you are. You are just and right. Now, when I say that, when we say that the Lord is just and right, without question, in many of our minds, there's a what about statement that comes in. He's just and right. But what about this that happened to me? What about this that's taking place in the world? Now, the psalmist is speaking as somebody who knows oppression. That's why he's literally seeking the Lord in this prayer. He's marking about the experience of oppression in his life. And he calls upon the fact that he has walked in a way that's consistent with how his Lord is. Just and right. 
Now, point of clarification, the psalmist isn't saying, look at my resume, I'm just and right, so that he can have a relationship with the Lord. He already has a relationship with the Lord through, through faith in, in God, the covenant promise that God has given them. He has a relationship, and he's been walking that out. It's been impacting his life and his lips. And he brings a reminder, Lord, I'm walking with you. I'm walking in a just and right way. So please, I know you're just and right. I know you're going to bring perfect justice upon a broken and sinful earth. I know you're going to judge these people that are oppressing me and they're in oppressing your word. But if you could do it a little earlier, that'd be great. Question. Question. When God doesn't deliver us, in situations of hardship or oppression, is he still good and just? Now, you know the guy that's preaching is going to say, well, yes, of course, there's no spoiler. You're not sitting on bated breath. You know what I'm going to say. But truly, do you believe that's true? That every one of us has a birth date, a dash, and a death date. And if the Lord doesn't respond to our prayers and our requests and our moments of hurt and suffering as the sting of death strikes near, is he still righteous and just? Is his character still blameless? If you have your Bible, flip over to Daniel chapter 3. If you're following in the Pewback Bible, it's page 740. In your personal Bible, it could be page 740 as well. I don't know. That'd be incredible if that ends up being accurate. But if you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 740. But I really want you to flip there so we can see this picture in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Now, if you're familiar with this story, let me, let me catch this up as a reminder for you. So do you remember Israel? Israel, chosen people of God. Israel has split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, the Assyrians, both of these Kingdoms. The northern kingdom has no righteous kings. The southern kingdom has a few. So they survive a little bit longer. The northern kingdom experiences judgment. The Assyrians come in, conquer them, take them off, and disperse them into the nations. The southern kingdom, Judah, is righteous for a little bit longer, but God raises up Babylon and allows the Babylonians to come in and to take them captive. So the Babylonians come in and they identify the, the, the most wise and the best that they can take and re-indoctrinate into their way of life. And among them is Daniel and his two friends. They rename them. And in Daniel chapter 2, we won't read Daniel chapter 2, but to catch up in the story, in Daniel chapter 2, God gave Daniel a clear understanding of this vivid dream, this vivid image that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And nobody could figure it out in all of Babylon except for Daniel. And, and, and it leads King Nebuchadnezzar to make this amazing statement. Your God, Daniel, is the true God. He's God over all gods and Lord over all kings. He's, he's worthy to be praised. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he, struggle, he, he struggles with memory loss, and it leads him to build this gigantic idol, this huge, massive golden image. And he calls people to come and to worship, to come and to bow down. So look at Daniel chapter 3. As King Nebuchadnezzar has given a decree to all the people, to all the leaders, and all all of Babylon to come and to bow down and worship the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 3, verse 15, picking up about halfway through. It says, but if you do not worship, statement given to these three men, 
who believe in Yahweh, who've entrusted themselves to the Lord. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now look at this, 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, three words, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not. These men that believe in the Lord give this statement. Now, obviously, they don't want to be incinerated. It's not on the to-do list for the week. And they say God is able to deliver us. But if not, that stuff you said back in chapter 2 is still true. He's still able. His character is still good. He is still righteous and just, even if our end date on our dash comes earlier than we desire. His character is worthy of your trust. Are you trusting him? The context of your relationship, your desires, your career, your classes, your marriage, your relationships, your hopes, your dreams, what you, what you said is right or, or, or just, are you entrusting it to him? God's character is trustworthy. It's God's righteousness and justice that lead us to believe that there is hope beyond the end date of our dash. Who are you trusting in? Tell me about the character. Character and authority. Authority. Number two, verse 122. Trust is an issue of authority. It's the belief that he is responsible for you. If you trust someone, if you're entrusting yourself to someone, you're saying that I believe that their authority, their jurisdiction stretches everywhere I desire to go. Their authority is appropriate over me. In verse 122, the psalmist says, Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. Do you remember in Daniel 3.17? Oh God, you are able. You are able. They trust in his authority. They know that the authority of God is able. The reign of God is, is able. It stretches that far. Even though people are actively oppressing him because he's trying to live how the Lord desires him to live in covenant relationship with him, walking that relationship out in his life, people are standing against him. And he and the men that we saw in Daniel likewise say, no, no, you are able. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. So he says, give your servant a pledge of good. The New American, the New King James, give this picture and translate it this way. Give shirtly. This, this statement of giving safety to one's life. It's the same word used, we won't look there, but in Genesis 43, you can write down that reference. In Genesis 43, this command is given. It's a request. It's a statement of faith. Joseph has been taken off into a captain. He's been sold in slavery, but, but God blesses him and he raises him up. And his brothers go to him. And remember the scene of going back and forth. And so Joseph's dad Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, one of his older sons is named Judah. 
That's where the names are going to come from later. And jo- Joseph sends Judah back and says, do you have any, young, any brothers, any younger siblings? And there was a sibling that wasn't there, and it's Benjamin. Benjamin, Benjamin is identified as one that's supposed to come back with him when he goes again. And in this scene that plays out, Judah goes back and he stands before his dad and says, listen, he's asked us to bring our siblings. Can you give us Benjamin? And his dad is terrified of what that could mean, that he could lose all of his sons. And Judah gives a statement to his father, uses the same word, the same phrase. He says, I pledge that he will return safely to you. I will make sure of it. That's what the psalmist asks of God in the face of adversity. I'm your servant. Because I'm your servant, I know that your authority stretches in full. So would you give me safety? It's not a question of the Lord's authority. It's a statement of faith in the Lord's authority. But it's still a gracious request. Lord, will you stretch in this way? Will you act in this way? Every one of us has a question of the authority that we have, the authority that we need to deal with. If you have a problem at your work, you're probably not going to go to one of our children and say, can you help me with this? Can you speak to my boss about this? That'd be so confusing because the child doesn't have authority over the situation. That would be foolishness. The scriptures declare that Yahweh's authority is over all the nations, all the world. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In Acts 17, let me read it for you. Acts 17, 31 through 34. Actually, you can, you can flip there. I'll give you time. If you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 927. I looked those up and wrote those down. I don't have the Pewback Bible memorized. That'd be awesome. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is this man who's come to Christ. His entire life has been flipped upside down. He's entrusted himself to Yahweh. He's entrusted himself to Jesus. He's made a claim, a belief that Jesus is God in flesh, the eternal Son who's taken on flesh. And Jesus has all authority over the earth. And he's given his life over to Jesus to be his king of his life, to forgive him and to rule his life. And as the Lord Jesus who rules, he he sends him out and he goes to Athens. And in Athens, he goes to this large place to be able to speak to all the people that are gathered. And in speaking to them, towards the end of this statement, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he speaks about the reign of the Lord's authority. He's in a place that has tons of gods. They have a god, they have a little idol they worship to the unknown god in case they forgot one. He goes to them and he declares the full authority of Yahweh. The full reign of who Jesus is, that you believe he has total authority over all of life. He makes this statement, Acts 17, 31 through 34, finishing up the sermon that he gives to them. He says, because he, the Lord, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. That's a statement of authority over all the world. He will judge it. How will he judge it? In righteousness, just like we saw the psalmist say that he's right and just by a man whom he has appointed. And on this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear what you again, uh, 
we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Some mocked, some believed, and yet the Lord's authority was never questioned. The Lord has authority and he is able, even when people mock, even when they choose not to believe. The call of those who've entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ as servant, to be his servant, is to lovingly proclaim. And some will mock. By God's grace, others will believe, and yet his authority is never challenged because his reign is over all the earth. Trust is an issue of character. It's an issue of authority, and third, we notice it's an issue of consistency, an issue of consistency, verse 123 through 125. When we say that trust is an issue of consistency, the psalmist reminds us that his promises are reliable. He believes that the promises of Yahweh are reliable. He believes in the consistency of God to keep his promises. Lord, you said it, so you're going to do it. I know you will. I know who you are. You're the unchanging, certain, promise-keeping God. You don't change. Look at 123 through 125, Psalm 119. He says, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. It's that, that Hesed idea again. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Time always changes. It's a saying, right? Things change. People change. Time changes. The change is the only consistent thing in life. Every stereotypical Facebook or bumper sticker picture on change, you can imagine, insert it here. Things change. As people age, what do they say? Back in my day, people have been saying that for generation after generation for all time. Even Adam would have said back in my day before the fall. Back in my day. It's a statement declaring that life is ever-changing. Everything changes. Listen, let's be honest here. Trauma changes us. If you're an athlete and you have a massive injury, it changes you. Victory changes you. The gift of new life and, and having a child, it changes you. Losing life, it changes you. Victories and joys, our lives are ever-changing. Like being in a snow globe, as one has said before, they get shaken around, the pieces will fall in a different spot, and the question is, am I comfortable with that? Will I accept that? In a life in a world marked with ever change, there is one certainty. There is one who can truly keep his promises, and that is Yahweh, the Lord. And it's what, it's what in the face of oppression, that the psalmist, the servant of the Lord, builds his life upon. You keep your promises. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, and, and, and teach me your statutes. We're in 23, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promises. Point of clarification. If this isn't communicated in our minds, my mind, I can make this mistake pretty easily. Maybe you can too. 
The Lord is unchanging. As creation, you and I change and are impacted by creation every given week. It's why when we see each other and we ask, how are you doing? What are we asking? How have you changed since the last time I've spoken to you? Even if our reflex is to say, I'm good or everything's fine. We're ever-changing. We're in creation. We're impacted by other bits of the Lord's creation. And the Lord who has created all of creation, he's outside of time and space. He is by nature certain. He is by nature unchanging. Though he loves you and he cares for us and he knows about all of creation and he decrees of all time to come to pass, he's involved with his creation, but he's not stuck in creation. He's not changed by creation. We don't have to be fearful that something that will happen that will cause God to totally change his mind. His word, you can take it to the bank because he's over the bank. He's the authority of all. And he is certain. In an unchanging world, the certainty of an unchanging God is one of the greatest blessings you and I can ever have in our lives. Do you know him like this? The psalmist says in 123, my eyes long for your salvation. My eyes long for your salvation. Meaning, though I'm getting tired of looking forward for your deliverance that you're going to bring me, I don't question you that you're still present, that you still know, that you still care. Your consistency, your faithfulness, it never changes. I can hardly keep my eyes open but I still trust you. Though I'm tired, I still trust. That's the picture of the consistency of God. So I encourage you this week, as things change, as your business changes, as your life changes, as your health changes, to trust in the certain God is one of the sweetest privileges of life. One of the blessings and privileges that I get to have in a, in a unique perspective is to be able to preach funerals. And in preaching a funeral, you're with somebody as they're about to lose their loved one, somebody that buries their loved one. On the day of preaching their funeral, there's an awareness that begins to set in that this is totally different. I did not sign up for this. I've been able to be a part of funerals and burying children and burying the old. And all across the board, there is an awareness that our lives are going to be different now. And you know where the only place I can take them to rest is? It's not in a platitude. It's not in it's going to be okay. It's in the goodness of the word of the Lord. It's in the unchanging God of all creation. It's in the one that's worthy of their trust. That's where we look. It's to him that we looked the consistent Lord of all. And so the promises of God we take to the bank in our lives because it's all we have to stand on in a world of ever-shifting sand. Like a little girl looking forward to Christmas Eve, she sees the present under the tree day after day, day after day, and then Christmas Eve comes. And she can't go to sleep at night because she can't wait to see it. Midnight passes, 2 o'clock passes, 3 o'clock passes, and now her eyes, she can't even keep them open hardly. She's exhausted, but she doesn't question, is the present still under the tree? She knows it is, but she desires for time to fly so she can be delivered. She can receive the gift that she's hoped in, trusted in, 
That's what the psalmist says like that, but the promises of the Lord. You're consistent. You're a promise-keeping God, but my eyes are tired. But help me to still trust. Trust is an issue of character. It's an issue of authority. It's an issue of consistency, that you'll do what you said, and you can do what you said. But fourthly, even if all those three are true, even if we were to take a test and we were to say, you know what, I believe Jesus Christ, this sinless one of God who lived a sinless life, and you believe the claims of God that he really did die on the cross, fulfilling all righteousness and laying his life down to pay the debt of your sin. You say, yeah, I believe that's true. You believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe that's true. I believe he's ascended to heaven and he will come again. I believe that's true. It still comes down to the fourth trust issue. Will I surrender to that? Will I surrender to him? Even if actually we say all those things are true, will I surrender to that over my life? Will I surrender to him over my life? Trust is an issue of surrender. Verse 126 through 128, believing that his ways are better. Trust is an issue of surrender. Believing that his ways are better. Look at this, 126. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts, all your teachings to be right. I hate every false way. The psalmist believes that the Lord's way is better than all ways possible. Do you believe that's true? And if you believe that's true, have you entrusted yourself over to that? To the Lord, as his servant, to say, I, I truly believe, Lord, your ways are better than all ways. And that's why he celebrates in 126, it is time for the Lord to act. And he ends it in 128, I hate every false way. He knows that the way of the Lord is ultimately true and good. Trust is an issue of surrender. Every one of us, we all have a different story. We've all come from a different place. Even to be here in this moment, we all got to Nacogdoches in a different way. We all got in this room in a different way. But every one of us, if you know Jesus Christ as the king of your life, if you're trusting in him, you all have the same, we all have the same beginning part. There was something that happened in our life by God's grace that we said, his ways, his way, not my ways. Forgive me, Lord, lead my life. It's an issue of surrender. Trust is an issue of surrender. I promised myself I wasn't going to give more than four football illustrations this morning. And I've done that, so I have at least one left. I'm going to use it. To say that you trust your coach, your coaches, is to say what? That their ways, that their vision, that their intentions are better than your ways. And in part of your mind, you'll say, but I got here to this place. I got a scholarship. I got here. I was a star beforehand because I did this. You have your own ways. But the issue of trust and surrender comes to say, but, that may be true, but your ways, coach, are better than my ways. Your ways are better than my ways. And how do you discover if that's really true? 
Because you can print it on a banner, you can put it on a t-shirt, we can say that churches have mission statements and vision statements. What we believe that God has called us as a church body to glorify God by making disciples. We talk about word, worship, service, family. We'll talk about that a lot at our family meeting next week. What does that look like and how we practically live that out as disciples, followers of Jesus? Well, here it is. He tells us, look at what you value. Look at what you treasure. Look at your life. What do you treasure? What do you value? So to say I trust my coach is to say what? I treasure their word. I treasure what they say. I treasure their philosophies, their habits, their practices. It's what I value. I value it more than gold. And, the, and everybody else says, even fine gold? And he anticipates, he's like, even fine gold. Even the best of gold. The most valuable of stuff. I treasure it. Look at 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold, because his ways are better for us than our ways, even when, remember the psalmist? He's still in the same situation. His oppressors are still right there at his doorstep. And yet he still declares with faith and confidence because he's entrusted himself as a servant to the Lord. He doesn't say, if you don't give this to me, my days of serving you are over. Rather, he doubles down, I am your servant and I know you will act. I believe in your character and I treasure and I value your word. What do you treasure and value? If you want to find out what somebody's really surrendering to in present tense, find out what they treasure and value. And on the opposite side, when we examine our own lives on a regular basis and ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, help me detect in my life what I actually am valuing, what I'm actually treasuring right now with my time and my, my, my mind and my heart. And expose to me where, to who, and to what am I actually surrendered. Trust issues. The Word of God. Jesus says in quoting Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Trust issues. Trust in Jesus. And know life. His character. His authority. His consistency bid you to come and die. Surrender your life to the King. And as the many who know the King, to say, Lord, help me to keep dying. Help me to keep surrendering. Because I believe your ways are better than my way, so act. Next steps. Next steps. We call them next steps. They're points of clarification in our lives to say, Lord, what do you want next in my life? What step do you want me to now take? So in our service structures, we walk through, what do we do on a regular basis? We, we look to the Lord, and then we come to a realization of our dependence upon him. And we sit under the goodness of his word, and we, and we ask ourselves, Lord, your, your word is a light to my past, so, so what should my next step be in my life? Two very simple starting points, or maybe many more by which the Spirit of God is illuminated in your life this morning. The first is, have I entrusted myself to Jesus to be my Savior and Lord? Have I done that? Have I done that? If you haven't do, done that, why not today be the day of your salvation? Why not today be the day you surrender yourself to the rule and the reign of Jesus, that you would place your trust and trust yourself to, to Jesus, 
to be the king and authority of your life. We would love to talk to you about that. Your Connect card is a great place to be able to give us information. We can follow up with that and walk with you on what it means to follow Jesus in your life, to trust him. But secondly, knowing that these components, these three areas of character and authority and consistency are areas that directly impact our ability and desire to surrender to the word of the Lord. We know that spending time in his word will impact our lives and our desire to actively surrender. So, as we sat under this ion, this little strophe, this poetic paragraph this morning, what impact might this make on your calendar, on my calendaring, on what my life looks like on a regular basis? How can I make sure I'm treasuring the things of the Lord even greater? He is the one that is a cornerstone for all of our life. He is worthy of our song. You stand together, make this your prayer as a congregation. Stand with me as we sing.